Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that the love that you have for us knows no bounds. Hallelujah to that. Thank you that when we come here today in the name of Christ, that we are worshiping in, joining together in the very presence of the living God. And where you are, there is the answer for every need because you're God. You're the holy, righteous, just, all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing, all-sufficient God of all goodness. And so we come to worship and we come to bring our thanks, but we also come to bring our needs. And you're the one that initiated that. You tell us, when you walk the shores of this earth, Jesus, you said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. As your Holy Spirit moves among this place here this morning, you are looking into every heart. You, Before your gaze, all of our lives are laid bare. but really that's a good place to be with you. What we need, you can supply, and I'm asking you to do that. I certainly don't know what that is. I have a hard time understanding what that is in my own life. But you know every need, and you're the answer, and I'm asking you, God out of your abundant riches in the Lord Jesus Christ, would you supply those? For those that have doubts, give them faith. For those that are broken, bring healing. Those that are afraid, bring peace. Those that need a physical touch, you are the God who is able to do that. According to your will, would you do it? There are those here that are facing, well, ultimately all of us are facing an unknown future in the days ahead. We know ultimately what's coming, but those that are here that are facing needs of a job. I know several of them. I'm asking that you would lead and open doors that no man can shut and make provision. As I think about the fact that all across this city, there is one church of Jesus Christ that is gathering in a variety of locations. I'm asking that you administer in each of those, that your spirit would work in power. Your word would 
be accurately divided and powerfully proclaimed and faithfully applied. Do that here as well. Thank you so much for your word. Living and active. Sanctifying. Correcting. Training. Rebuking. Equipping. Use your word today. I'm asking you that you would lift Jesus Christ, your son, up. Holy Spirit, would you empower me to be a witness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ today? That's really what matters. And that in that unleashing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there would be freedom with that truth, however that's needed. Just commit it to you. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, happy Mother's Day, mothers. What we usually do is we, as a staff, work ahead of time and try to plan and come up with some way, some gift to give all of our mothers that attend church on Mother's Day just to honor them. And as we were thinking through that a few months ago, an idea came forward, was actually put forward. This does not surprise me at all. It's put forward by some mothers, some of our pastor's wives, that what we should do this year is take the funds that we would normally use to purchase gifts for the mothers that are here and contribute that money to Crisis Pregnancy Center and the ministry that they're involved in. Yeah. So that was done, and the same response took place in the first service, and what that just tells me, just the selfless heart of a mother is just emphasized uh, again by that fact. Uh, Thank you, mothers, for being who you are. Thank God for my mother, incredible mother, and I know that you feel the same. Romans chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, would you open there, please? If you are new to Cornerstone, just make you aware that we are involved in in just an expositional of verse-by-verse or phrase-by-phrase walk through Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We've come to chapter 7 last week. Um, I begin chapter 7, and what I did as I started, I gave an overview of the chapter. We just kind of looked at the overarching theme of the chapter and the three divisions that the chapter uh, neatly falls within. 
Let me just, if you were here as a, as a reminder and as a point of context, because context is so critical when you're studying the Scripture. You hear that regularly here. Understand the context, and it'll help you grasp the truth of the text. So the context, what's taken place here in this chapter, is that Paul is writing this chapter to the legalist. If I were to give just an overarching statement about Romans chapter 7, I think we could write this over top of the chapter as a true statement that what's taken place here, what Paul is teaching about here, is the believer's relationship to the law. And that context, or that text, flows out of the context of Romans chapter 6. And what Paul did in Romans chapter 6, if we put an overarching theme over that chapter, was the believer's relationship to sin. So, the larger context of the letter now is this. Paul began in Romans chapter 1 developing a theme of the righteousness of God. And how... We can become justified, become saved, be put into a right relationship to God through His grace alone that comes through His Son alone and His Son's death on the cross. And so, Paul has been developing that theme beginning in Romans chapter 1 with his thesis statement in verses 16 and 17. And he continues that process... And then he comes down to the end of chapter 5 and he makes a statement at the end of chapter 5 that sets before him another subject. And what it looks like initially, if you're just doing a casual reading, it looks like Paul starts on a rabbit trail that he stays on in chapter 6 and chapter 7. But what it really is, it's a parenthetical statement. Chapter 5 ends, and Paul picks up the theme again in the beginning of chapter 8. And chapter 6 and 7 are this parenthesis statement. But he is diving in or going down this road because there were some who were misusing his teaching on the message of God's free grace through Christ for justification. And so they were taking that teaching, some of them, we have a big term for them, antinomianism or antinomians, they wanted to use the grace of God as a license for sin. Romans chapter 6. Paul dealt with that heresy in Romans chapter 6, and he dealt with it, he manhandled it. I mean, he dealt with it Powerfully, and we spent many weeks going through how Paul just turned his the fire of his pen upon that that lie and just fully defeated it with sound, profound reason and logic. Romans chapter seven is still a part of the parentheses. 
And what Romans chapter 7 does is that Romans chapter 7, instead of dealing with the one who was wanting to use the grace of God as a license for sin, it deals with the legalist. Last week, as we did an overview of the chapter, I gave you a, just a brief definition of legalism. A legalist believes that they can become holy and pleasing to God by performing the works of the law. And so what Romans chapter 7 is about is answering that other pendulum swing. Not the pendulum swing up here to grace unto license to sin, but the pendulum swing that I can, by obedience to the law, by doing all the right things, I can somehow work toward a right relationship with God. So that's context. What I want to do this morning is I want to look into Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Let me just read that and then we'll walk down through it step by step. I'm going to read out of the ESV. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, Paul writes, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. Let me just begin by looking at three different terms in verse 1. Just really quickly try to make sure that we're on the same page with our semantics, the verbiage that is used, the definition of those. Three terms are when Paul says, brothers, what does he mean? Who is he talking to? What is he referring to when he says law? And what does that word binding mean? First of all, brothers. Two options here. Is Paul talking to the Jew, his fellow kinsmen? Or is this just a reference to the believers in the church at Rome? There were both Jewish believers and there were Gentile believers. I think I won't spend time to really go into detail and unpack that, but I believe Paul is just talking to the believer in general. He's talking to those to whom he is writing the letter. So then that brings up a second question. What about the term law? Two options here are that Paul could be talking about the Mount Sinai law, the law that that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai inscribed on the two tablets of stone, the law that Moses then passed on to the people, that law given to the Hebrew nation there. That's one way that could be looked at. 
There's also another possible understanding of that, and that is universal law under which all of mankind stands. Here's what universal law is, the universal moral law. There's a lot of different ways to talk about this. Um, One great author of history, C.S. Lewis, did some incredible work uh, on explaining this, but there is evidences all the time as we live our life day to day that there is a universal law under which we live. You validate it by your speech. The people around you is just one way, validates it by their speech. I'll give you a few statements that would point to it. It'll be easy, I believe, to see. Statements like this. Why would you even think of doing something like that? Statements like, but you made a promise. Or a statement like, if someone treated you the way you just treated them, how would that make you feel? Now, what is inherent in those and so many other statements like that that we made? What is implied, what seems to be obvious there, is that there is a sense of right and wrong. There is this understanding of a moral code. I'm not saying that all humanity in all locations lines up and dots their I's and T's the very same on what the details of that moral code are. But it is clear across humanity that there is a moral code. We sense it. We know it. Not only do we know that it's there, but here's the other aspect of the truth. We know that we are guilty of breaking it. That's God's universal moral law. It's my understanding that Paul in referring to brothers as talking to Jew and Gentile alike, in referring to law, he's not just exclusively talking about the law God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, but it is inclusive also of the general universal moral law upon, that is binding upon mankind as a whole. And then the word binding. What does that word binding mean in verse 1? It simply means to lord it over, to have authority over, to have dominion over. So, kind of unpacking those three key terms there, let's look at the overall concept of verse 1. What is it that Paul is getting at in verse 1? Here is what I believe Paul is doing. He is establishing a fundamental principle related to law. He is coming out of the chute here in verse 1. He is going to set down a principle, and he says it's a principle that they were well aware of. They understand. This is not going to be new news to them. They know this fundamental principle. I think the principle could be stated like this, that the law 
has authority over a person as long as that person is alive. That's the principle. That this law of God has authority over a person as long as that person is alive. And then what he does in verses 2 and 3 is that he pulls in an illustration to validate the fundamental principle that he set forth in verse 1. So he reaches into his bag of illustrations and he brings out in verse 2 the illustration of a woman that is married. Let's read verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. The point Paul is making seems to be very obvious to me. The point is this. The binding nature of the law. A law that his readers would have understood. That's his point. The binding nature of the law of marriage over that woman in his illustration remains intact until the death of her husband. Throughout her life, as long as her husband is alive, that binding law has authority over the woman. And Paul is using that as an illustration that they would be fully aware of. He is not giving a seminar here on marriage and divorce and remarriage. That's not what he's doing. He doesn't develop the details of this. He doesn't talk about any exceptions to this. He is just using an aspect of the law that they would understand to drive the foundational truth of verse 1 home with an illustration, to punctuate it, to validate it. And the truth or the illustration is this, that the binding nature of the law remains intact on that married woman until the death of her husband. And then what he does in verse 3 is that he dives deeper into the validation of the fundamental principle of verse 1. He takes the illustration of verse 2 even further. He repeats it and then goes another step with it. Notice at the end of Verse 2, it says that if the woman's husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. That binding law over her ends. That's what that word released means. It is no longer an authority over her life. What happens to her marriage is when her husband dies, the marriage ends. So the law no longer applies to her. It is null and void. In her life. Then he comes into verse 3 and watch him jump deeper into it. He walks through the same statement and then he takes it even further. Verse 3 Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. He gives the negative side of the principle. He establishes the principle with the illustration, and then in verse 3 says, If she breaks it, here's what it means for her. 
She gets on the negative side of it. She's still bound by the principle. And what that means is that she becomes an adulteress. And then he states it again in the positive way at the end of verse three. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. What is he driving at? He is not giving a seminar on marriage and divorce. He's trying to establish firmly the foundational truth of verse 1. And that is that the law has its jurisdiction over a life until death. And so he uses what would have been a common understanding and illustration that fit what he was saying to drive that point home. Then he comes to verse 4. His goal has been verse 4. The steps, the foundational principle in verse 1, and then the illustration of verse 2 and the deeper move into the illustration in verse 3 are all intended for the setup so that he can now bring the point home into a personal application to take this general truth statement, this foundational principle about the law and take it right to the life and the heart of his readers to the Christians at Rome, and then ultimately today, if you're a believer, write to you. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. First thing that I want you to see here. Likewise, my brothers, likewise, my sisters in the Lord, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. What Paul is doing here is that he is He's really speaking about the whole concept of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe, in essence, he is driving home again the truth of Romans chapter 3, verse 26. First three chapters of Romans, Paul was making a strong point He was showing mankind their absolute hopeless guilt and condemnation under the wrath of God. And then in verse 20 down through 25, he gives the answer. The answer is Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done that can give us the very righteousness of God so that we can be found in peace with God instead of his enemies and under his wrath. And then he comes to verse 26, and he makes this great statement about 
the center and the heartbeat, the very core of Christ's work on the cross. It was so that God the Father could be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Let me explain what that means for a moment. Time of Adam to the time of Christ, there were countless sins, sins against the moral law of God, sins against the holiness and the righteousness of God, sins that had been piling up down through human history, seemingly saying, God is not a just God because he has established the law of righteousness and history and all of humanity has fully and comprehensively and pervasively broken that law and he hasn't done anything about it. Where is the justice of God? And in the death of Christ, there was a divine shout down through history that proved the justice of God. Because in the perfect Holy Son, all of the punishment against sin was satisfied. All the wrath of God was poured out. What Jesus did on the cross was he validated the justice of his father by taking on himself the punishment for sin. So that God could be shown to be just. But not only just. He could also be shown to be the justifier. Romans 3.26 That through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ could God be true to his nature. And at the same time extend his grace and forgive you and me. And welcome you and me into the free grace where we are hidden in Christ, found in His righteousness alone. You see, what is happening here, I believe, is that Paul is pointing to or hinting at the same principle. It's a principle he was hinting at and said over and over again in chapter 6, when you put your faith in Christ, here's what happened. He told us this over and over again in chapter 6. When you put your faith in Christ, you were united to Christ. And in that uniting, you died to sin. Your relationship to sin forever changed. And it forever changed because you were actually united to Jesus Christ so that His death to sin became your death to sin. And His resurrection to new life became your resurrection to new life. That is really your reality. Not will be one day, is at the moment of your salvation. In the same way, when you accepted Christ as your Savior, when you put your faith in Him, what happened is, That you died to the law. You died to the law that condemns you. That justly convicts you and sentences you 
to the wrath of God forever. How is it that we die to the law? How is it what Paul says here in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Does that mean that when we become a believer, that the law is no longer any good for us anymore. It just becomes null and void. It becomes a scrap document that we can just throw in the dumpster. Now we're under the all-conquering grace of God. We don't need this anymore. Is that the message? That is not the message. That's what some were doing. Romans chapter 6. That was... The pendulum swing into license for sin by the grace of God. Wanting to just take the law and throw it away. Say it has nothing to do with me anymore. That is not the message of Christianity. How is it that we have died to the law? Here's how. We've died to the law, but it's in this way. We have died to the law as the means by which we enter into a right relationship with God. That's how we die to the law. Meaning, no longer is our path to a right relationship to God through the works of the law. Not that anybody ever walked that path, but the Word of God says, do these things and you will live. The problem is, no one ever did those things. So, we are lawbreakers. Paul made the point over and over and over again in the first chapters of Romans that by works of the law, no one will be justified. He taught around the subject several times. He stated it once explicitly. By works of the law, no one will be justified. What I think Paul is doing here also is he's teaching us a complementary truth that I hope to be able to make clear to your mind by the time that we're done. That in the same way that by works of the law, no one will be justified. By works of the law, no one will be sanctified. I believe that is the other side of the message that is being communicated here, as Paul brings this down to an applicational point. So the, the applicational truth, first of all, of Romans chapter 7, verse 4, is that if you're a believer, you have died to the law. You have died to the law as the means by which you, through a process of good works, try to Earn your way to God. You never could have done it anyway. But you're dead to that now. That is no longer your story. 
Your story is that the one who was perfectly righteous and perfectly fulfilled the law has made the way for you by being hidden in him to be found in his righteousness alone so that you can stand faultless before the throne. You see, what some were saying of Paul's teaching was that, oh, Paul, what you're saying then is that once we're under the all-conquering, superabounding grace of God, end of chapter 5, we don't need the law anymore. We can just give it the boot. And Paul is not saying that. Paul is saying the way that you've died to the law is that it is no longer the way that you are expected to come into a right relationship with God. You see, the law is not nullified by, abrogated by, the work of the grace of God through Christ. What it is, is it is actually fulfilled by it. It is fulfilled by it. Go back to the illustration of the married woman. When she was married and when she was under the binding law of that marriage, as she was alive and her husband was alive, when her husband died, what that did was that it, in a sense, fulfilled the law of that marriage. It brought it to a completed status. It's not that it said, oh, that law was bad, that law law is nullified, that law is no good. No, it brought it full circle and completed it in her life so that from that point forward, she was now released from it. And through the death of Christ and our belief in him, what happens is that the righteous requirements of the law, they're not insulted by that work. They're not put off by that work. They're actually fulfilled by that work. So that when we're put in Christ, we are righteous and stand in the very righteous requirement of the law. So personal application. The believer has died to the law as the means by which they vainly strive to enter into a right relationship with God. The law of God is no longer the determining basis that will judge the believer. The law is the determining basis that will judge the unbeliever, but it is no longer what will judge the believer. So, trying to keep the context clear, I'll try to bring this uh, toward uh, a conclusion that will tie this together. Try to keep the context clear so that there is a balance 
here between the two extremes because we can be in the danger of swinging to the extreme of grace gives me a license to sin so that I can just set aside the law of God and ignore it. Romans chapter 6. Or the pendulum swing in the other direction, which is an attempt to become pleasing to God by obeying or by doing the works of the law. Let me illustrate that for a moment. I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question. Has this ever been your story? And I'm going to be transparent and tell you, it has been my story. If you're a believer, follower of Christ, you came to Christ, you put your faith in Christ, and in the realization, the revelation to your heart, the work of the Spirit that showed you your need and showed you who Christ was and put the faith to believe there and you accepted Christ, there was this sense of this this release, this absolute confidence that Jesus Christ had done enough and you were now justified. You were now saved. You were placed in Him and there you were secure in Him and the Spirit of God testified with your spirit that you were a child of God. And then you moved on from that place and you began to wonder at the truth of God's Word, and you begin to take the truth of God's Word in, and it was showing you incredible things. Wow, it had the answers to life, and you were growing in your faith, and making not that you were in any way perfect. Oh, you were aware that you were not. But there was a direction. There was a heading. And it was an exciting walk. And you were looking forward to the lifetime of that until you saw Jesus face to face. And then came the crash. Whether you inadvertently slipped off of that solid foundation of truth that you were standing on or whether you stepped off of it or whether you took a flying, aggressive leap off of it and you crashed into sin. I'm telling you, that's been my story. And here is what can happen in the pendulum swing. You can move into legalism if you don't guard your heart and guard the process. I told you at the end of last week as we did an overview of the chapter and we concluded that that legalism wears at least two masks. And here's one of the masks that legalism wears. Personal condemnation. The mask of personal condemnation. 
Oh, look what I've done. Oh, I have went too far. I have shamed the name of my Lord. And what we can do, because it's in our human nature to do this, is that in our heart, remember, it's the heart that God is most concerned with. It is the why being more important than the what, that in our heart we can say, I've got to fight my way back. I've got to work my way back. I've got to get back and do the good things that will bring me once again into a right relationship with God that my sin has wiped out. And folks, what that is is the stages of beginning stages of legalism. You could never get into the blessing and the pleasure and the grace and the peace of God in the first place by what you did. How can you now get there having done the deed or turned away once you have been placed there? It's the same truth. You need the grace of God to bring you back just like you needed the grace of God to bring you in. And so what Paul is doing here in the seventh chapter of Romans is he is teaching us what the place of the law is in the believer's life. And what he says in the first Four verses here, really up to the sixth verse, is that the believer has died to the law. Meaning, you've died to the law as the means by which you appease God. You do not appease God by doing the works of the law. You don't appease Him enough to get justified in the first place, and you don't appease Him enough to get sanctified in the ongoing process. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that you do not need to take the Word of God as a believer and zealously work to apply it and that the Spirit of God will use that in your life to sanctify you. Yes, He will. It's the truth that sanctifies. It's the Spirit that uses the truth to sanctify. But if you are trying to do that on your own good works, you will never get it done. It has to be empowered by the work of the Spirit of God, taking the Word of God in the child of God to make you like the Son of God for the glory of God. That's how it has to work. So we've got to avoid these two pendulum swings. The one that is license to sin because, oh, the superabounding grace of God has won the day and will keep winning the day so I can throw out the law of God. No, that's not true. 
Or the other pendulum swing is that, man, now that I'm in when I blow it or I've got to keep myself in by what I do or when I blow it, I've got to work my way back to where I was when I first got saved. No, that is not the way it works. It is the grace of God and faith from first to last for the just shall live by faith the thesis statement of the book of Romans, Romans 1, 16 and 17. So that's what Paul is doing in these two chapters, in this parenthetical statement. He is moving down these two roads, having taught about the free grace of God through justification, firmly establishing that idea in the person of Christ. And then in chapter 6 and 7, he pauses to answer the objection of two groups of people who were abusing his message, one in one way and one in the other. So that at the end of chapter 7, As chapter 8 opens up, he comes back to where he left off in chapter 5 to continue the treatment. So what I want to do here in closing is I want to show you something out of verse 4. Really, what is ultimately, I believe, the main truth that Paul from the beginning of verse 1 is driving at. Let me read verse 4 again. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. That's not the main point. That's the foundational truth stated, illustrated in verse 2 and 3, and personally Applied in verse 4, but for what reason? So that you may belong to another. You see the illustration of the woman married and bound in that marriage and the fact that the death of her husband is what frees her from that contract, that legally binding argument. It's not just to say death frees. It is to say death not only frees, but death opens the door for that woman to re-enter another marriage. That's the point. For her to be joined to another. But he's not talking about marriage. He's talking about the believer's relationship with Christ pre-salvation, we were married to the law. We were under the contract and the, the binding dominion of the law. But through the death of Christ and are united to Christ, we died with Him. That law for us ended. But that's only so that we could be united to another, united to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that uniting is for a purpose. It's not just for the uniting. Listen, it's so that in order that we may bear fruit for God. That's the point. 
You see, he said, when you were in the old relationship, what fruit did you bear? You bore fruit for death. But now that you've been united to Christ, there's been a death. There's been a death to the law. And what that enables you is you're free now. And you can be entered into a new relationship with Jesus Christ. And what can happen and what will happen in that new relationship is that what you could never do when you were under the bondage of that old legal contract You could never bear fruit to God. But now that you're in a new relationship, what's going to happen in your life is that you are going to bear fruit for God. That's the point that he's making. And so what he does, watch this. What he does in verse 4 is that it's in one of those incredible statements that Paul makes where he paints a picture of the Christian. He's done this for us several times as we've walked through these chapters. But here it is, an incredible, he gives a, a, a definition in a sense and a description of what it means to be a Christian in this verse. Four points, let me show them to you. First of all, What he says here tells us immediately is that what it means to be a Christian is that it is an entirely new life. There's a death and there's a resurrection. Let me show you the truth by contrast. It doesn't mean that there's an altering. It doesn't mean that there's a small adjustment. It doesn't mean that we recalibrate a little bit. It doesn't mean that we stop doing a few things that we used to do. That's not what it means. Folks, here's the problem. So often in our culture, in our American Christianized culture, what we do is that's how we define Christianity. It changes us a little bit. That's not the definition. It's a radical retransformation. It is a death and a new life. That's what it entails. Secondly, the one who has become a Christian doesn't only have a new life, they have a brand new relationship. They were enemies. Now they're children. That is total radical transformation of relationship. Once you were outside of the kingdom of God, under His wrath, in rebellion, now you are a beloved son or daughter. Folks, this isn't a little change. This is radical, comprehensive. Thirdly, We have an entirely new purpose. An entirely new purpose for life. And it is this, to bring forth fruit for God. How are you doing, believer? If you have been saved, you were recreated to bear fruit for God. What does that mean? I give you the general aspect of what I believe it means. 
I believe it means that you will bear the fruit of righteousness. That what will happen is you'll begin to live in a way that actually is in alignment with God's law. For the first time in your life, the thing you could never do before, the fruit is that you'll begin to live a holier and holier life. And what will that do? It'll bring glory to the Father. Why did He save you? So that you could bear fruit for Him. So that you could live for His glory. That's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that you hang around here until it's time to go home. You are to be about bearing fruit for God. I'm not talking to those who are planning on full-time ministry. I'm talking about every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are recreated to bear fruit for God. If you are not doing that, you are absolutely abusing the new life that you have been given. And then fourthly, and here is the culmination, the great principle that comes at the end of chapter 4 that I said he was pointing to, thinking about from the very beginning, and it is this. It's not only that you become a brand new person and it's not only that you have an entirely new relationship and it's not only that you have an entirely new purpose, but listen, you now have the power to get that done. You get the Spirit of God to come and live in you so that what the law could not do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature can now be accomplished as you live by the power of the Spirit of the living God. For He comes in to invade your life and to empower your life so that you can bear fruit and more fruit and much fruit. All for the glory of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not are you doing perfect, but are you moving in that way? If you're a believer, you will be moving in that way. Yeah, there'll be times when you slip or step, or there will even be times when you take a flying leap off the path and you crash and burn, and with it down comes your confidence and your peace. But don't buy into the lie that somehow you got to work your way back by good works. The grace that saves you is the grace that's still available to cleanse you. And it was free the first time, and it's free this time, and it'll be free the next time. Because if you try to buy it in any way, shape, or form, you've completely misunderstood what grace is altogether. Would you please stand? I don't know where you're at. But I want to pray over you.
altars are open. I know I, as I do so often, I'm so sorry I get long-winded and caught up here. But if you need to deal with the Lord about something, these are altars of grace. Altars of grace. And it's free. And it's offered. In fact, if you're sensing the need, it's the God of grace who is placing that sense in you. He's drawing you. It's all about his initiative. And he's just wanting you to respond. Let me pray. Father, Oh, Lord, I, I just thank you for your truth. Thank you for your conviction to my own heart over my own sin. That the offer of grace is abundant and free. Thank you. Oh, Lord, help us to live as we really are brand new creations with an entirely new relationship and a heaven-grounded purpose and a God-given power to get it done. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.